Warning, due to violent or disturbing content, listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Seeing Red. My name is Becca and I'm joined by my beautiful co-host Nina. Hello. So who are we? We're just two creepy chicks who met around five years ago but now live on opposite ends of the country. Our true crime game is strong so we said screw it and started a podcast. As Becca said, my name is Nina. I live in PA and currently I'm working on a degree in forensic psychology. I'm Rebecca, but most chop off the rate. I'm 27, currently living in Arizona. Uh, I don't even know what else to say. Whatever. Just take me as I am, internet. (laughs) Our goal for this podcast is to discuss and hopefully introduce you guys to lesser-known serial killers, mass murders, cults, and unsolved crimes from around the world and throughout history. So now let's cuddle up and talk about murder. Where are we going today, Becca? Today we're headed to New England to a small town called Fall River, Massachusetts in the early 1890s. We decided to do our first episode on Lizzie Borden since we've recently had a chance to visit her home and grave. And a quick shout out to our tour guide who is extremely patient with all of our very annoying questions. (laughs) Not many people know about her story besides her killing her stepmother and father with an axe. And at least once in your life... Some way or another, you've probably heard the childhood rhyme about the crime, but we're going to dive into the possibilities of what could have played out that day. On the afternoon of August 4th, 1892, the body of Andrew Borden was discovered in his Fall River home. Upstairs lay the body of his wife. After a few short days, their daughter Lizzie was arrested for the brutal murders. We're going to touch briefly on the history of the Borden family. Andrew came from a wealthy, prestigious family, and although his branch of the family was very poor, every penny that Andrew made, he earned through his own hard work. Andrew married Sarah Bors, and they had three children together, Emma, Alice, who died very young, and Lizzie. Sarah later passed away during childbirth with her fourth child, who also died, when Emma was 11 and Lizzie was two. Needing someone to help him raise his daughters, Andrew married a 37-year-old spinster named Abby Gray. By all accounts, Andrew was a cheap bastard. He raised his family in a modest house, and although he had more than enough money to live a more comfortable lifestyle, such as on the hill, which was considered the wealthy part of their town. While even the poor of the area enjoyed things like indoor plumbing and electricity, the Bordens still used kerosene lamps and wash basins. So I have a theory that Andrew suffered from a condition called paniophobia, and this is a fear of poverty. Since he grew up very poor, I think there was a deep-seated fear that he could return to that same poverty. I think that he believed being frugal with his money was a way to ensure that this wouldn't happen. However, I do think some of these claims of his stinginess were slightly exaggerated. His daughters did have fashionable dresses, and he bought a house for his wife and paid for vacations for the family. So at the end of the day, I think Andrew just wanted his family to be happy. (laughs) At the time of the murders, Emma was 41 and Lizzie 32, and neither of the women ever married. I think we should talk about that for a minute. Emma promised her mom on her deathbed that she would always take care of Lizzie, and maybe that factored into her never having relations with local men. Because her mind was caught up with the rift in her home, she remained a homebody, besides the few select friends she did have. The local men in the area were poor blue-collar men, leaving limited options for the sisters. And although their family had this money and power throughout the town, their old-world lifestyle led to not much interaction with the men of the hill whom Lizzie and Emma would be interested in. 
By all accounts, the relationship between Abby and the two Borden daughters was not a very good one. Some years before the murders, Andrew bought a house for his wife that she used to house her sister, who was in danger of becoming homeless. Feeling salty, though, Emma and Lizzie essentially threw a hissy fit. They felt like they deserved equal treatment to Abby. It seems to me that Abby was worried her sister was going to be homeless, so her husband decided to help out his wife. The Borden sisters didn't see it this way, though. They thought it was unfair, even though Emma and Lizzie had no need for a property, nor could they even live in one without husbands. But Andrew, wanting to appease his bitchy daughters, gifted them a house as well. And interestingly enough, they sold the house back to him. Wasn't it for $5,000? Sure was, which was more than three times the cost that the house purchased for Abby. Clearly, they just wanted to prove some kind of juvenile point. Basically, they were just being little brats who stomped their feet until they got what they wanted. But this incident forever changed the dynamic of the household. The daughters interacted very little with Abby, rarely dined at the same table as her, and was now addressed as Mrs. Borden by both Lizzie and Emma. Um, nope. Tell us a little bit about the day of the crime. That morning, Andrew and Abby had breakfast with John Morse, the brother of Andrew's first dead wife. He arrived the day before to discuss business with Mr. Borden and spent the night. Emma was away in another town visiting with some of her friends. She had been there for a while, though, right? Yeah, for about two weeks. So Andrew and Abby and their maid, Bridget Sullivan, were sick that morning, but most people think it was food poisoning from some bad mutton. But was Lizzie sick? She said she was, but she seemed far less affected than the rest of the house. Morse left that morning around 8.40 to see his sickly relative, stating that he'd return later. Andrew left for work around 9 a.m. Abby instructed Bridget to wash the windows inside and out, and then Abby went upstairs to clean up the guest room that Morse had used the night before. At some point, Lizzie informed Bridget that Abby had received a note from a sick friend and left to go tend to her. So around 10.40, Andrew, not feeling well, arrived home early. Lizzie mentioned that Abby was away and that Andrew... So then Andrew decided to sit on the couch tonight. Meanwhile, Lizzie and Bridget were ironing handkerchiefs, and Lizzie mentioned a sale in town on cloth at a market. Bridget said that she would go, but instead, because she was so sick from probably shitting and pooping <laughs> out her ass, she decided to lie down in her attic bedroom. Around 11.15, Lizzie yells up to Bridget that someone has killed father. A doctor, police, and Lizzie's friends all gather around the scene. It is soon discovered that Abby, too, had been murdered in the guest bedroom, found by another maid and a friend of the family as they climbed the stairwell. Abby was either struck from behind or the first blow to the front spun her around, with 19 blows from a sharp object to the head and neck and one between her shoulders. It is expected that Abby was killed approximately one and a half hours before her husband as her blood was dark and congealed and her stomach contents were less digested. Abby was photographed by local police who had lowered her dress and to cover her exposed legs. In those times, her being found that way would have been inappropriate for the many people contaminating the crime scene to come upon. On our tour of the home, we got to see the exact spot where her body was found and even got to see the original crime scene photo with the old time camera reflecting back in the vanity mirror. Abby appears to be bent over doggy style, but it's revealed later that the cops only moved over the top layer of her dress and left the under layers bunched up underneath, 
giving the appearance that she was face down, ass up. Andrew received 11 blows with a sharp object to his face while he slept, and the murder weapon was never found. Right. So there's definitely some shady shit that went down, but we're going to discuss some theories. Our first theory is the intruder theory. Initially, it was suspected that either a disgruntled employee or client of Mr. Borden's has, had sought revenge or that a crazed maniac had committed the murders. But this theory is basically bullshit. The killer would have had to enter the home undetected, gotten lucky enough to come upon Abby unaware, killed her, then hid somewhere in the house for an hour and a half. Given the small area of the home, the only option where he could have hid would have been this small closet. And on a warm August day, no one's going to be cramped in this small area for an hour and a half. But let's just assume he did. Stranger Danger is in the closet, listening to everything going on, hoping no one discovers Abby while he's still in the house. Then he hears Andrew return home and quietly sneaks his sweaty ass out of the closet on the assumption that only Andrew was present and wouldn't notice him. He whacks Andrew, then deuces out of there before anyone could see him. What are the chances? But why would this killer only kill Mr. and Mrs. Borden and leave Bridget and Lizzie not dead? <laughs> Excellent question. And if his target was Mr. Borden, why kill Abby with such brutality? 19 blows is definitely overkill to me. And how would no one hear at least the murder of Abby? Abby was a 200-pound woman falling to the floor being struck over and over again. Our tour guide said that they did an experiment where three people went to different parts of the home and a woman about Abby's weight fell in the room upstairs as she would have when she was attacked. They had someone in the sitting room where Lizzie claimed to be, someone in the kitchen, and another down in the basement. And all to various degrees heard the woman hit the floor. And to boot, how's this guy, who would definitely be covered in blood, run from the scene in a busy neighborhood in broad daylight and not anyone seen him? It just makes no sense. The next possible theory is that Lizzie and Emma possibly hired a hitman. This theory is slightly more conceivable. It was well known that Lizzie was unhappy with the way her father ran his household. She wanted to live on the hill with all the luxuries befitting their status. She and Emma did not get along with Abby, and getting both parties out of the way would act in Lizzie's favor, as she could now live the lifestyle that she wanted. According to the Massachusetts law at the time, should Andrew die before his wife, the bulk of his inheritance would go to Abby and only a small portion to his daughters. Following Abby's death, her inheritance would go to her family and not the Borden sisters. It was imperative that Abby died first, leaving the whole of the estate to Emma and Lizzie. Could Lizzie have hired a local man, someone she was acquainted with, to carry out the murder? After killing Abby, she could have had this guy hide in her bedroom until her father came home. Possibly, and then sent him to kill Andrew as well. She could have easily sent him off, giving him ample time to escape before she alerted Bridget of her father's death. This could account for the murder weapon never being found, and no blood evidence ever being found on Lizzie herself. However, who could this man have been? Given her marital status, it was not proper for a woman to keep the company of men who were of no relation to her. Who could she have been close enough with and trusted enough to act out this plot? There was her uncle, John Morse, who was known to stay in the Borden house on occasion, but his alibi is said to be airtight. He states that he was with a sickly relative and is alibied by both the relative and Dr. Bowen. He was able to recall not only the trolley number that he took that morning, but also the numbers on the hat 
of the trolley operator. The operator did not remember Morse. However, another known associate of Lizzie was Dr. Bowen. He lived across the street from the Bordens and was the first one Lizzie insisted to be called after she found her father with this rickety, fucked-up jaw. <laughs> there was rumored around town that Lizzie and Dr. Bowen had been having a sick affair. Not sick. Nasty. Nasty affair. As he would often escort her home after church and would look in on her when the rest of the family was away. And if you'll remember, Dr. Bowen was one of John Morse's alibis. Conspiracy. However, there is no evidence that anyone besides the Borden sisters benefited financially from the deaths of Mr. and Mrs. Borden. John Morse never came into any money, nor did Dr. Bowden. Now for the most popular theory. Lizzie Borden was the murderer. Now this is where it gets juicy. We're going to have theories within theories here pertaining to hows and whys of Lizzie committing these murders. Many books, movies, and documentaries have speculated. So let's dig in. Okay, so there's a theory that Lizzie and possibly Emma were molested by their father, and this is difficult to prove or disprove. When we look at the psychology of incestuous fathers, we generally find men who are controlling and feel a sense of ownership towards their family, and this definitely fits Andrew's personality. However, these men also tend to be drunks and violent and incapable of holding down jobs and responsibilities, and this certainly doesn't fit Andrew at all. Unfortunately, things like child molestation by parents didn't start being studied until the 1920s, so it's difficult to know what the typical behavior for both a victim and a victimizer would have been back in 1890, as we have no records of it. Even Sigmund Freud dismissed the idea of childhood sexual abuse as an imaginative fantasy, because he's an asshole. It is speculated now that it was commonplace for fathers to, quote, teach their daughters about sex and thinking of them as property, use them in whatever way they saw fit. But in my personal opinion, Andrew didn't seem like a very sexually driven person. His marriage to Abby was one of convenience and they never bore any children. And given his status, he likely could have landed a younger, prettier wife. Sorry, Abby. But chose instead... Uh, someone who would be a good mother to his daughters. I think people like this theory because it villainizes Andrew and paints Lizzie as a victim rising up against her abuser, but it does nothing to explain why Abby was killed and with so much more violence than Andrew. Yeah, but didn't Lizzie end up buying her dad a ring? Wouldn't it be weird to get such a personal gift for someone who's molesting you? Um, it's actually not as weird as you'd think, especially in the age where this wasn't seen as abuse. Some part of her may have been competing with Abby for her father's affection. But then again, it could have just been a sweet, innocent gift to her father. We'll never know. On to the next theory. The most common theory is that Lizzie killed out of greed, and it's been stated that she recently met with a lawyer, perhaps to talk about how the family inheritance was going to be divvied out. It was also suspected that John Morse was visiting to discuss the changing of Andrew's will. This may have given Lizzie a sense of urgency. Perhaps Lizzie planned this murder for this particular day, knowing that her sister would be away from the house, further protecting her. She waited for Morse and her father to leave the house and for Bridget to begin her chores outside. While Abby was cleaning the bedroom, Lizzie could have snuck up behind her and caught her by surprise, then came up with the story of Abby being called away to explain to Bridget why Abby wasn't there. 
When Andrew arrived home, Lizzie tried to get Bridget to leave the house by mentioning the sailing town, but her plan didn't work with Bridget asleep upstairs. She was so far away enough to proceed. Fuck me. While her father napped on the couch, Lizzie came upon him. Here's a snippet of Bridget's actual testimony during the trial. She states, Then I laid down in bed. I heard the city hall bell ring, and I looked at my clock, and it was 11 o'clock. I wasn't drowsing or sleeping. In my judgment, I think I was there three or four minutes. I didn't think I went to sleep at all. I heard no sound. I didn't hear the opening or closings of the screen door. I can hear that from my room if anyone's careless and slams the door. The next thing was that Miss Lizzie hollered, Maggie, come down. I said, what is the matter? She says, come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody's came in and killed him. This might be 10 or 15 minutes after the clock struck 11, as far as I can judge. As a quick side note here, Emma and Lizzie referred to Bridget as Maggie, the name of their previous maid, and Mr. and Mrs. Borden called her by her proper name. This would have taken a lot of planning, but Lizzie had nothing but time on her hands, being a woman of Alicia. <laughs> At this same time, though, this plan banks on Lizzie being very lucky. We can see that Lizzie may have taken the opportunity to sneak up on Abby, but you would have to assume that she removed her shoes to do so. Heel boots being common at the time, Abby would have heard her footsteps coming behind her. I feel that Lizzie would rather have taken Abby by surprise, since though they were around the same height, Abby outweighed Lizzie and could have potentially overpowered her if attacked straight on. Lizzie would have had to hope that Bridget wouldn't find a reason to ascend those particular stairs and discover Abby's body. No one knew that Andrew would be coming home early that day either. It's very out of character for him. Had she already planned on luring Bridget out of the house, but had she planned on doing it later in the day and just moved up her timeline? But when was more stew back at the house? How was she sure he'd nap? Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> And the question that always bugged me the most was how in the hell could she accomplish killing her father in 20 minutes? Nearly every movie I've ever seen loves to have Lizzie stark ass naked while committing this crime. But let's walk through the steps of that. So dad falls asleep. Lizzie goes into some other room and strips off her clothing. These clothes, by the way, are a dress, a corset, underskirts, garter belt, stockings, shoes with hooks. Yeah, women wore a fuck ton of shit back then. <laughs> right? And then she grabs her weapon, goes to the sitting room, chop, chop 11 times, then has to go clean the blood off herself. In a house that has no running water. Exactly. Just water basins. Then has to redress into her shit ton of clothing, hide the weapon, and then discover the body. All the while hoping no one sees her prancing about in her birthday suit. Come on. It's just impossible. And I couldn't really figure it out. But then I read a book by John Douglas called The Cases That Haunt Us. And his theory is when Andrew was found, um, he had his overcoat folded next to his head. Being an anal retentive guy, Andrew likely hung his coat up properly when he arrived home. So what if Lizzie wore this overcoat while committing the crimes, protecting her clothes from the spatter? And knowing it was covered in blood, she places it under his head as though it had been there the whole time. Clever, clever. Now she only has to wash up her face and hide the weapon, and that's easily done within the time frame. 
So you can see that this theory or one similar to it is far more plausible than any over-sexualized idea of Lizzie committing these crimes in the buff. Ma. <laughs> Let's flip the script. We believe this was an inside job. It was rumored around town that Lizzie was having an affair with a doctor across the street because he would escort her from church to her house and check in on her when she was alone, blah, blah, blah. Scandalous. Who's to say that Uncle John didn't help the two devise a plan to get rid of the parents and to go about their secret relationship with the cash she always wanted? We speculate that because the town knew about them publicly interacting and such, that it was brought to the attention of her father that something shady was going on between them. And maybe he confronted them about the distastefulness of their secret affair. Right, because let's not forget, Dr. Bowen was a married man. Having this bad blood between her and her parents, maybe Lizzie, along with her uncle and Dr. Bowen, three devised a plan to get rid of the parents, letting Lizzie run off to the hill with her sister. Sister, wanting no involvement, possibly left town when this was supposed to occur to keep her innocence. Upon hearing of the deaths, she didn't return home until 6 p.m. that evening. And who doesn't rush home upon hearing the deaths of the majority of her family? Cash and love may have been motive and reason enough for the three or four of them to go through with the crime. Dr. Bowen, who may I add was in his 60s, (laughs) at the time of the crime occurred, could be able to successfully poison the maid, father, and stepmother at the breakfast meeting between John and them. Although their toxicology revealed no poison. John was said to have remembered the trolley numbers, nuns on the trolley, etc., but who's to say he didn't watch this occur from afar and run back to help do the deed at the house with the help of Lizzie and dispose of the murder weapon without ever being caught? It's possible that Lizzie made promises to both men and then reneged. A promise to marry Dr. Bowen, a promise to give Uncle John some money, but then after the trial refused to follow through. It's not like either men would rat Lizzie out if they were equally guilty. No woman or amount of money is worth the hangman's noose. Regardless, Lizzie becomes the sole suspect and is arrested shortly after the murders. And the biggest trial of this small town's history begins. But what's the evidence against her? Okay, so we have the note that Lizzie claims came from Mrs. Borden that morning, but it was never found. Nor does anyone come forward to support its existence. After a thorough investigation, neither the sick friend nor the delivery boy were ever validated. And there was even an advertisement placed in the newspaper asking anyone to come forward about the note, but no one ever did. We also have Lizzie claiming that during the time of her father's murder, she was in the barn looking for iron for her fishing rod for an upcoming fishing trip and ate three pears from the tree in the backyard. Three pears seems a little excessive. However, investigators found that no dust had been disturbed in the barn and questioned whether she would have spent so long 10 to 15 minutes in a stuffy barn on such a warm day. She later stated that she went in search of lead sinkers, not iron. There was lead by the barn door she could have easily used for the sinkers and even got her story wrong when asked about the two different statements at her cross-examination. She claimed she couldn't recall which it had been and was getting too confused with all their questions. (laughs) Shady. It said that on that day of the murders that Lizzie was wearing a blue drab dress, but later changed into a pink and white number. Lizzie was later seen burning a blue dress that she had claimed was covered in paint. 
In the testimony, it said that the dress that was burned was blue corduroy. I question whether this was the dress worn on the day of the murders, since corduroy seems like a very heavy material to wear in the summer. However, Lizzie was never able to produce the dress that she wore on the morning of the murders. A small spot of blood was found on Lizzie's underskirt. When questioned about it, she explained it was a flea bite, which apparently was a polite euphemism for your period. (laughs) Furthermore, a pail full of bloody rags is found in the basement that Lizzie claims to Dr. Bowen were menstrual rags that had been there for two days. Bitch and nasty. (laughs) Although, Bridger says that since she's the only one that goes down there, that she would have noticed it. Okay, and we have a pharmacist that claims on the day before the murders, Lizzie tried to buy prussic acid, also known as potassium cyanide. And for those playing at home, this is the same poison that the People's Temple used to commit mass suicide. (laughs) Kool-Aid. She said she needed this to protect a seal-skin cape. Three customers backed the claim. It is unlikely that Lizzie would attempt to poison the family as there is no guarantee that Abby would have died before Andrew. Assuming she killed for monetary gain. Right. And I think these people just wanted their 15 minutes of fame during this very famous trial. This testimony, however, was deemed irrelevant and inadmissible by the judge. Finally, though not physical evidence, I'd like to point out Lizzie's behavior upon discovering her father. I think there are one of two normal reactions to finding your dad's diced up body. One, you either rush to his side, checking for signs of life, hoping he's still alive, or you run from the house, afraid that the killer is still lurking about somewhere. And Lizzie didn't do either of these things. She never approached the body, nor seemed afraid of being harmed. She just called for Bridget. I can't pretend I know how I'd handle a situation like this because we're all different people. But her behavior doesn't seem typical. Make of that what you will. I would just like to add here that if you saw Andrew's chopped up fucking face from the picture that we saw from the crime scene, I would have gotten my fat ass right out of there. Yeah, you'd either be terrified or concerned. Like, that's my point. How do you just be like, oh, Maggie? Yeah, if I saw your shit flapping and blood gushing out everywhere, my ass would be down the block. Right. But she was very chill. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about what happened to Bridget after the trial. Bridget just disappears after speaking out at Lizzie's trial. That seems kind of shady to me. Mm -hmm. She disappears from history after that. She marries some guy, has a family in Montana, and eventually dies of old age. How does an immigrant maid at the time end up moving to Montana? I bet she got a cut. Definitely. (laughs) Emma goes on to use their inheritance to help prove Lizzie's innocence. And Lizzie is later found not guilty on all charges by the jury. Legally speaking, the jury was well within the law. All evidence presented against her was circumstantial. With no murder weapon or forensic evidence found on Lizzie, which may I add, there was little forensic evidence testing at the time. Doubt was cast upon her guilt. But I'm just going to say, if Lizzie Borden had a fucking penis, she would have been hung for a double murder. For sure. Lizzie lived out the rest of her life in Fall River, though now up on the hill with Emma. Lizzie began spending her money on fancy dresses, meals, nights out at the theater, and with some questionable locals. It was even rumored that Lizzie was having a secret relationship with her carriage driver, which Emma wasn't pleased with and had him fired. 
All this and who knows what else caused a rift between the siblings, which after 12 years as roommates led to Emma, who never married, moving away to New Hampshire. After Emma moves away, Lizzie now rehires that same carriage driver, but she also never marries. Her community shunned her post-trial and most of her friends abandoned her. Someone even wrote a doggerel about her, which is still remembered to this day. A man by the name of Edwin H. Porter released a book called History of the Borden Murders in 1893. Outraged by his claims of a story she was trying so hard to forget, Lizzie tried to buy up as many copies of it as she could to save face, but the small town would never forget her tale. The two sisters die nine days apart, Lizzie now 66 of pneumonia on June 1, 1927, and Emma now 76 of swollen kidneys on June 10. Lizzie, who's now known to the town as Lisbeth, is trying to hide her past, and Emma were finally reunited in the family plot alongside the rest of the Bordens on a small hill in Oak Grove Cemetery, just one mile from the home in which the murders occurred. If you're trying to visit the family, follow the giant white arrows to their plot. We hear the caretakers of the cemetery were tired of the same questions on how to find her. I wonder if Lizzie was lurking around today, if she would be mortified about being so well-known worldwide about the murder she didn't commit. And that's the story of the Borda murders. And if you're feeling peckish after all this death, we've included Lizzie Borden's famous meatloaf recipe in the show notes. Bon appetit. Coming episode two, we'll be taking you overseas to investigate the Ukraine native Andrei Chikatilo, a serial killer who murdered 53 people before being caught. Did his government fealty lead to innocent lives being taken? Come back next time and find out. And a quick thank you to everyone who's been supporting us already in anticipation for this launch. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter for extra content, episode announcements, and more. And a special thank you to Zip Scripts for our page art. Make sure to hop over to his Instagram to show him some love. And a shout out to Mr. Allman for our intro and outro music. That's it for tonight, folks. Until next time, remember to keep it creepy. Creepy.